This is Near Dark Radio. 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 All right, folks, welcome back to Near Dark Radio. My name is John Gower, your host, and I am joined today by Mr. Jerry Scruggs. Jerry is a professor of Spanish at Columbia Community College. He graduated from MTSU with a master's in teaching foreign languages, uh, got his second master's from Knoxville in Spanish literature, Latin American literature, and is currently working on finishing up your PhD. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, your field of study involves, let's see, this is a long list, issues of race, gender, sexuality, nation building, LGBTQIA plus identities, and masculinities and femininities in Caribbean and Latin American literature. That's right. Specific. And yet broad. Oh, yeah. What drew you to, what drew you to Spanish? Spanish, honestly, when I was eight years old, I've always, um, I've had, I've always had an interest in different languages, different cultures, different types of people. And in my household, where I grew up, I was always encouraged, like, to be who you are, be yourself, and love other people, and, like, genuinely mean that. And so I took that message to heart, but I had an interest in speaking Spanish when I was eight. I currently speak four languages now, but it started around eight years old, and the first time I saw a black person on television in a Latin American country, that completely sold me. I think it was like a documentary on Panama or something like that. And so once I saw a visual representation of myself, because I've been told, or maybe not distold, but simply not exposed to blacks being in other parts of the world, you know, in the Caribbean and South America, because that's part of the larger diaspora. So that's really what sold me. Yeah, that's... Um Something I encountered when I studied French. I mean, I, you know, you know, there are black people all around the world, mm-hmm. but seeing the black experience in France and how it differed from the black experience in America. Oh yeah. And how that like completely different histories, completely different issues there. I mean, it was an interesting, interesting situation. It's funny that you bring up France because you know they won the World Cup. You know the men's World Cup. The last they were the last to win it. And I think it was 2018 okay. when France won the World Cup, and there was a big controversy that sort of exposed like the racist elements in France because if you look at the French male national team, most of the players are from Africa. And they're black players. And so you had these comments like, wow, like, look at the French team. Like, is this Africa or is this France? And so you got a lot of those types of comments. And, and because people just aren't exposed, they don't understand that people, they migrate, they go to different places, they come from different types of places. Yeah, yeah. For different types of reasons. Mm-hmm. Colonialism, slavery. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we are going to get into some sticky subjects today. First and foremost, reparations. Uh, (laughs) You sent me this interesting, um, you could call it a, I guess it's an essay. It's a medium essay, so it's split up into six different posts Mm -hmm. on the website Medium um, by David Mills, who is a lawyer. Yeah, he's an attorney from Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Uh, And he's offering a case for reparations that kind of steps outside of the polarized, politically polarized debate between right and left. Exactly. Um, what did you, what, how did you stumble across this? I stumbled across it because uh, I actually got an ad from Facebook because I'm very active on social media, but I got an ad and I follow Medium articles. And then, so I just clicked that out of curiosity and I didn't even look at his bio. I just read the art, the title stuck out to me. George Floyd in the post-slavery state really stood out to me. And when I was reading it, six parts, like you said, it's almost like you could offer this as part of a curriculum in a school mm-hmm. for someone who is more skeptical, someone who may be not in favor of reparations, to sort of give them the information, start out with this historical argument all of this concrete information, he makes a very good attempt to give you all the different presidencies and all the, the legislations that were passed. And it's, it's hard to debate those 
concrete facts that you see, and then you say to yourself, wow, I'm, I may be more comfortable with this idea of reparations if I actually understand what it is. It's not some sort of a handout, but and it needs to be more community-driven. That's what it needs to start with. And so uh, I was... But at the same time, I do have a few critiques of the piece because I'm a literary critic by trade, so I have to critique it. You know, I can't be just like, damn, look at all this positive, positive, positive. Yeah, no, yeah. I, ha- I have to tear that apart too. You know, <laughs> it's part of that critical training you got. Of, of course, yeah. and it's not just criticism for the sake of criticism, but overall, I loved it as far as the informational piece because we are in a post-slavery state. We think about 1619, 1865, and just this year, we're acknowledging Juneteenth existed. It's like, we didn't know that that existed before George Floyd was murdered. And that just shows you the cultural disconnect with the larger country, because people aren't taught black history in schools. You're not taught anything that even resembles this in a school, not even at higher education, so less alone in the lower schools. And so I think it's one of those things where um, it, takes a lo- it takes a lot of occurrences. It takes a lot of years for people to step outside of their comfort zones because I think that's the danger with this liberalism sort of philosophy. Like if you're identified with a certain political party and you feel like you are more receptive to different ideas, there's still so much more that people have to learn. And I think that race is an issue that's never been uncovered fully in the United States. And so um, I think the reparations debate resembled by the low popularity shows you that we have a long way to go. Only 14% of white Americans support reparations to begin with. And this is from the latest poll in June, you know, when Floyd was murdered. So it shows you just a disconnect. Yeah. Well, let's unpack what he means by reparations because there are a lot of people who think reparations is checks to black folks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the conservative argument would be well, we've done that. We've mm-hmm. done we've done welfare, which gives checks to a lot of black folks and white folks. Mm-hmm. Um, how does this How does this change anything? That didn't seem to work. We right. don't We don't seem to have progressed a whole lot in the in the black economic situation since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. How How is this any different? Right. So David Mills, basically, his main argument for the listeners is that we should have a community-based approach to reparations. His argument is that these communities that were redlined, and for people who don't know what redlining is, is simply, it's a situation where you had, especially urbanized, it's an urbanized phenomenon more than anything, where sections of town were marked by colors, red being perceived as the worst parts of town, and that's where the black people were. And this is a history that's before from people migrating from the south to the north, the Great Migration. And so... Which was early 20th century, sort of black flight out of the the rural area. Exactly. And this is also in reaction to Jim Crow laws in the south. Mm -hmm. And so blacks are moving to the north to get economic opportunities. And ideally... There's some sort of a civil rights incentive as well. You're saying to yourself, well, if I'm getting treated like this down here, maybe there's better opportunity up north. And so people settled into larger cities, Chicago, Philadelphia. But these people are segregated into certain communities, and the worst parts are considered red zones. And the government is labeling these areas red zones. And you have blue and green zones, which are positive zones when it comes to loans from banks to these different areas. And and even to this day, you see the disparity between the way banks loan to black people in certain areas versus other groups. Yeah, and that affects, like you said, interest rates on loans. Exactly. It affects housing prices. It no affects, doubt, yes. Uh, you know, the, the amount of tax money that's within that community. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it urges, it, it, it gives incentive to things like gentrification, which is, a, which is one of the things that I would um, use to counter Mills' argument. I think, the, I think the issue with Mills is that, okay, we give money to the community, we give resources to the community 
to where there's more power ideally in the community when that happens in the redlined areas. The problem is that the redlined areas aren't necessarily the way they looked 30, 40, 50 years ago. Those areas, that parts of Nashville, to use an example, East Nashville, 30 years ago, there were parts of East Nashville white people would not even go to. Correct. I know because we were in those areas, and now it's like you go there, there are like coffee shops there, but then you still see like these high rises. Working spaces. Oh yeah, and then you still see the high rises, and it's, it's a complete contradiction. Yeah. Well, what um, to kind of like for people that haven't read this article, Mills is advocating for, in, as opposed to like checks to black folks. He's saying we need to invest in these um, poor communities, poor areas, these redlined areas, mm -hmm. so that they develop, so that more businesses come into those areas, so that the prices of housing start to go up, so that the level of just the what standards of living go up there. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it's when I was reading it, I was like, well, you're essentially talking about government funded gentrification. Yeah, because it presupposes you, that those people that need the resources are going to get the resources. Yes, and it and presupposes that they'll be able to stay there exactly. once the, everything starts going up. For sure, definitely. Which I think was, I was, I didn't see any sort of solution to that problem. But we have to understand too, because we'll get to it later, when we talk about Ice Cube's contract with Black America, David, Wills, David Mills is still coming from his perspective He's very influential. He grew up in Cleveland, and just looking at his bio and stuff, he grew up with a lot of black people. Like I can, I knew, I know that as a fact. But the problem is that he's still coming from his identity, his positionality, and when you compare it to Ice Cube's black contract, the language is completely different. This language in Mills' piece is more. Um, it's not, it's not very radical language, I don't feel, but it's very informative. It's very, it's direct, but it's informative, but it's not necessarily emotional. I don't think it's emotional. No, it's very legalese. It's very legalese, yeah. exactly. And so, um, that may not, again, the message is a good message, but I just think that that's a major danger. Like his main premise, I, I, I think his intentions are great, but I don't know how you curve the gentrification um, problem that we face right now in the in the large cities. Yeah, because I, it's an urbanized thing. Yeah, and it's I mean it's essentially you want these communities to be brought up. Mm -hmm. In bringing them up, right now we're finding that a lot of people get left behind. Yes, that were once in those communities, and in getting left behind, they get pushed out. Exactly. So what's happening in North Nashville? What's well? What they're attempting to do in North Nashville after the tornado? Mm -hmm. You know, these people buying up properties to turn them into condominiums it's an and stuff. It's an opportunity for yeah. them. And they're and they're essentially pushing out the the people that lived there for generations. And they call it a displacement, but you can think of it as a replacement as well. Because well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and but but the thing not to just trash Mills' piece completely because again overall is great. Mills, the thing that astonished me is the first part of it where he talks about from 1619 to 1865 that black wealth. This is according to his study would have been 16 trillion dollars in economic worth basically, and so blacks have lost that much worth just between that time period, $16 trillion. Last year's GDP was $21.5 so that's 75% of last year's GDP, and that's really the argument he, he's saying as far as the economic standpoint. The legal stuff is there, the historical stuff is there, but economically, there's no way that anyone that wants to... Um, detract or or refute the evidence, you can't refute the evidence, there was a lot of economic gain lost. Sure. Just I mean, from that standpoint, not even from a moral issue. Like we know morally like we don't even have to get into the atrocities with Emmett Till, the Emmett Tills of history, the Megar Evers of history. We don't have to go through with that because it's there if people want to see it. But I don't think people know about the sixteen trillion dollar figure that Mills talks about, and even the last presidential, which was just during the period of actual slavery. Exactly. That's not even that counting Jim even Crow. Doesn't even count Jim Crow. Doesn't count Jim Crow the, at all. You know the. 
and the, and the piece actually implies that there's an underestimation of this wealth as well. And you compare it, and as far as like the average black family, that would basically equate to at least a million dollars a black family. And people say to themselves, well, how is someone gonna pay for that? I don't have the answer to that question, but we're talking simply about, uh, you know, we have to accept that there is an amount that's owed before we can even go into, you know, breaking down exactly how does that become allocated to each family and stuff like that. My personal opinion, I would be, because I don't know if realistically it's ever going to be a situation where blacks are going to get fully what they want from this. I would be okay with $25,000 a black family, me personally, an apology letter from the government acknowledging all these atrocities. But we haven't even gotten that. We haven't gotten a letter of apology, anything like that, before we even talk about money, before we talk about um, 25% of that money going to HBCUs and the rest of that money being spread to the larger public education system in these communities um, that we're talking about that are disenfranchised. I think that would be a more effective strategy um, allocating those resources to the schools and to businesses that we know, that not just necessarily that community, because that community is changing demographically. We can't assume that there's, those are the people that are going to receive those services. Sure. Yeah. And if, again, if the communities, if the, the standards of living and the cost of housing and the property taxes start going up in these communities, there's no guarantee that the the black folks that live there are going to come up with that. They mm-hmm. may they may be displaced. Yes. Um, going back to what you said about just you know twenty five thousand to black families, how do you sell that politically? Oh gosh, because <laughs> it's, it's, it's I mean politically, but see that's the issue. I don't know if. I think direct action may be required in some of these situations. I think certain types of legislation will allow the political process to be more receptive to them. I don't know if reparations would have been so unpopular politically. Again, I just showed you the statistic. Three-fourths of black Americans are for reparations, and 14% of whites are for reparations. Uh, There's no political leverage with that at the current time. So there would have to be... We have to start maybe looking at, let's look at education as a single issue first. And then after that, let's look at criminal justice as a single issue. We're going to have to take baby steps because we know that we're not going to be able to get 10 things at once. It's going to have to be a step-by-step process. But I think that's what Ice Cube's Contract of America kind of goes into. It's a big template, 25 pages long, but you could almost take one issue and go with that issue because it's divided into sections um, with the 13.4% proportional philosophy that's invoked in here because that's the population of blacks in the United States is 13.4%. So the whole argument is that everything should be proportionally 13.4% to blacks, whether it's in school districts funding, whether it's um, police forces representation, 13.4%. And it argues that if that number is is lower than that threshold, then then that that would have to be a, a number that satisfies it, which I think five percent would be the threshold for areas like Montana, Idaho, who have lower black populations. But it's also important to realize that it's not just black people affected; Indigenous Americans are affected as well in the Black Contract of America. Um, and so those original peace treaties that were established back then would have to be reinforced with this contract. And so, again, how do you enforce this is a whole different story. I'm not in politics like that, but getting these ideas out to people who have a lot more leverage than I do and you do, I think that's where the point is. Like, We need to guide the conversation to these issues. The problem is that it never happens. We Well, you're an educator, and that's what you're talking about, is educating people on, for example, the history of the black situation in America, Mm -hmm. which David Mills does a good job of showing how that was an economic clusterfuck. Exactly, yes. (laughs) Um, But, okay, so the, yeah, Ice Cube's contract with black America, 
was uh, Joe Biden actually sat down with him. If I I'm, know he did. If I'm correct. <laughs> yeah. He did. Uh, so this I don't is, know what happened this is getting it, attention. Yeah, I don't either. And but, that was but really knew, but that we, was really infuriating to but me. But I knew that, that was going to happen. I that knew I knew that they announced that they're going to sit down together. We don't have any reporters in the room. We don't have any coverage of this. Mm -hmm. We don't know what Joe Biden said to Ice Cube. Well, I haven't seen any articles about Not it. Not much anyway. at all. If it's anything like the Cardi B interview that he had, oh my God, uh, there's just like I said, there's just a disconnect culturally because politicians. It's like once you get in that space. And especially the Democrats in particular, who they they don't hide it that they're trying to get black voters. No, they're trying to get Latin voters. They don't voters. hide it at all. The, the Democrats pretty much see it as we have these groups in our pocket. Mm -hmm. But now they're realizing that it's not that easy. These groups have demands and have always had demands. And so, I mean, I just saw today that forty-five uh, percent of the male queer community is planning on voting for Trump. Oh, yeah. And the Democrats are freaked out by that. Because and black they thought, males as well. They thought they had it in their pocket. Mm-hmm. No. No, they're jumping no. over because there's more nuance to, to people than that. Um, historically, yes, there's been a lot of support since the 64 split in the electorate with Lyndon B. Johnson. Yep. You know, once he won, the blacks jumped over to the Democrats. And that was even happening before, like right after Eisenhower, because blacks were, like, there were lots of black Republicans. Mm -hmm. But after Eisenhower's administration, a lot of the blacks, they jumped over to the Democratic Party because a lot of that was states' rights influenced, you know, that whole idea. Uh, we know about Brown versus Board of Education, the Civil Rights Act and stuff like that. And so that's the problem. The lens is still viewing black people through a 1964 lens and not a 2050 lens. And so we have to look at people through a 2050 lens. Like we want things, we've been wanting things. And we look want into the police. future, not to the past. Exactly. And I think most black people want police in their neighborhoods. It's just how many police, that's the problem. Because and what kinds of police. Exactly. And I don't mean what, what race or ethnicity. Mm -hmm. I mean, what is their training? What sorts of services are they providing? Law enforcement is one service. Mm -hmm. There's mental health. There's yes. social work. There's all sorts of other I mean, I hate to call them neoliberal devices, oh, <laughs> neoliberal man, governmental devices that are right. that are designed that are that are designed to help communities. Mm -hmm. And yeah, law enforcement is just one aspect of that. Yes, uh, that's that's why in the contract of Black America, I like it. The part where I've always believed that police should reflect the neighborhoods that they're policing. And so, again, I'm not going to go as far left as some people that, that I associate with when it comes to just like completely, I'm not saying defunding the police. I think police need to be defunded, but that's not abolishing the police. I'm not saying abolish the police. And even people who are defunding the police or you know, pro-defunding, they're not saying get rid of the police department just to make sure that's clear. But we do need a representation. If, if I'm in an area and I'm a cop, I need to know the people in that area or have a connection to that area. And that's what the black contract in America is saying. Within 25 miles, that person needs to have some sort of a connection with that district, whether growing up there, working there, or something. That's not the case for a lot of departments. A lot of people are moving to different cities and they're starting their career as cops. It's not like they're from that area originally. Yeah. And I think that that gives a more communal feel to a police department. It doesn't seem so oppressive and so, because we, we've announced it as a racial disconnect, there's a socioeconomic disconnect. And so we need to be, to see cops as if they're people that we grew up with mm -hmm. and not just like someone in a government instituted System foreign, in a uniform. foreign agent coming in. Mm -hmm. Because that just what, reinforces the fear that we already have. Like, yeah. I, I have fear of police from, from birth. Yeah. And it's not because I'm being programmed by the news, it's just from our experiences, we see the cops and we're scared because we don't know what's going to happen. Well, there's a generational fear mm -hmm. that's passed down because there are certain ways that the cops have acted towards the black community. Exactly. Um, going back to what you said about being in the community, I've had conversations with black people here in Springfield, especially since uh, the murder of George Floyd, and they 
are supportive of the police department here. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons that is is because the police officers here are from the community. One, we don't have a lot of incentives for people outside of the community to come here because it's yeah not a, it's not really uh, on any major highway. It's not it's not a destination. It's to, for people to it's, it's move to. It's definitely isolated. It's a little isolated. So the police officers here, for the most part, are from the community. Mm -hmm. And so they understand the community and they have the support, more or less, of the community. And they're not, you know, I don't, I, I don't know how much police violence goes on here, but I don't hear about any. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, but see, that's, a, that's another thing. I think... If you look at it from that perspective, we're hitting on something. I agree too. I, that's not to say that there aren't issues, but I think when it's a smaller area, it's more contained, you can get to know people better. Yeah. A lot of these issues that we're seeing in the news are happening in major cities. Most of them are major cities, as a matter of fact. Why? Because those cities are very segregated. If you go to Chicago, and, I, and I've told to, to some of my friends about this, people talk about Chicago, and they talk about, and everyone wants to paint a political lens with it, but it's not politics, man. It's it's deeper than politics. You can go to Chicago, and people perceive Chicago to be a very diverse city. But when you go to Chicago, you go to Barron and you see my cousins in Barron, you go to uh, Cicero, you see the blacks all together in Cicero, very rundown neighborhoods. And it's not to denigrate anybody, it's just to rally on the ground. These areas are disenfranchised, they're starved of resources, and, and the police, they... they they don't care about the, the residents in those areas. Chicago has one of the highest murder rates in the country right now. And then you go to the north of Chicago, you go to Skokie, you go to Evanston, you go to where the Lakeshore is, completely different feel. You have the affluent gays, you have the whites that have all the money, and then it's a very segregated city. Every city is like that pretty much, and these are so-called northern uh, democratic liberal cities, whatever you want to call them. And that's why that um, that whole smear by Trump is what I call it. it. It is like a tactic. There is some truth to that, to these these Democrat-run cities when it comes to the racial divide. There yeah. is a racial divide. You can go to any big city, Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, and it's very segregated. And like I said, gentrification is crazy. And the gentrifiers a lot of times are the people who claim to be your friends. Mm -hmm. and, but they're the ones that are buying up the property and they're kicking our families out of those places. And so, They may be your short-term friends in the sense that they're exactly. buying your house from you and mm -hmm. you get a big paycheck, but... What what what's next? Yes. Oh, you have to move out of the neighborhood. Oh, no you doubt. have to find a new place to live. Um, and I bring that up not to to trash my friends that are, are liberals, but it's just to give more balance to it because we'll, I understand the conservative side and well, those it, criticisms. We get that shit all the time. Yeah. It's like I don't want to hear about that shit anymore because I know about it. I want to give a well-rounded view. Because we need to be free thinkers. We need to be well-rounded and not just stuck in the CNN, the MSNBC, and the Fox world. Yeah. It's like you really have to open your mind and listen to what people are telling you when they tell you that this has been like this for 50, 60 years. Yeah. Well, I mean, talking about how the northern cities where we think of, oh, yeah, these are racially progressive oh, cities, how they're so segregated. Mm -hmm. I mean, the argument from southern Democrats back in the 1860s was that, oh, well, all these, you could either stay here and be in slavery and not have to worry about your food or your housing mm -hmm. and just work, or you can go up north and be in wage slavery where yeah. you're, you're working in a factory, you're getting paid cents, oh, yeah. and you ha then you have to worry about your food and housing. Oh, yeah. And so it was, that's obviously that was a, an argument in favor of slavery, so I'm mm -hmm. not, I'm <laughs> certainly not making that, but that there's a certain validity to that that mentality whereas if you that the north is not more hospitable necessarily mm -hmm. obviously they didn't have the jim crow laws that we had down here in the south exactly. they didn't have actual slavery but the racism was still there mm -hmm. the racial disparities 
Well, are, I want, well, I push back on that some because I, I, there were Jim Crow laws in the North too, um, especially, and, you, and sure. you saw that in education. They're just like um, my friend was telling us in a geography class, and I learned this. I was astonished when I heard this fact that Columbus, Ohio, they didn't desegregate the schools until 20 years, 23 years after Brown versus Board of Education yep. in 1954. I think it was 1977, they desegregated the schools in Columbus, Ohio, they just segregated the schools in my hometown in Franklin in 1968, I think, yeah. because that's when Natchez High School, that was their last graduating class, because those people would have gone to Franklin High School, you know, but they were zoned to go to Natchez High School because the schools were still segregated. Mm-hmm. But, um, and also the planter class in the North benefited from Southern slavery, and so even though they may not have been fiscal slaves in those plantations, they were still reaping the, the economic benefits from it. Mm-hmm. So th- that's the way I look at that. I, I, in ways, um, I think we've been sort of skewed to think that the North was benevolent and the South was, was malicious. But uh, I, I think more and more now we're seeing that in the political system, even not. If you think about just like, uh, let's just take the instance of racism and how that's incited. You can make the argument that for sure, yes, Donald Trump, he incites people to the point where they feel, they're feeling comfortable saying shit that they want to say anyway. And so they're calling me a nigga now, right? But they were thinking to call me a nigger anyway before. But then you compare that to someone that wants to incarcerate a third or half of my family in prison because of their drug laws that they put in place and and enforce that on me. So a lot of that is very equivalent. I don't think there's anything as good, bad racism. Just Franz Fanon said that. There's no such thing as good and bad racism. It's all racism at the end of the day. It's just the way the message is transmitted to the people Mm -hmm. that are receiving it. Well, and that's part of the conservative argument, again, that the Democrats are racist in this subliminal way, in the sense they that they think that, oh, well, black people are going to vote for us. They I are. mean, Joe Biden said it. If you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Yeah. Like, I, ca- I couldn't believe that I heard that oh, in I, 2020. Really? You, no. You shocked with that? No. I mean, I'm not shocked that he thinks that way. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked that his handlers... Or his PR agents <laughs> let him let that come out of his mouth, like it's yeah. It's or, uh, the, or I'm shocked that the DNC did not vet this person enough mm-hmm. to find out that they can't put that person up as a presidential candidate. Well, because well, 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 he's a known segregationist too. Joe Biden is. He's a known segregationist, and I think it's funny that Kamala Harris is now his VP pick. But she made one of the harshest criticisms and one of the most salient criticisms towards Joe Biden. Yeah. But yet he picked her anyway because he was. And now sa- she's all on board. Oh, well, look, at, I mean, she has no room to talk. I mean, look at her record. I know. And, and, so, and But that's what I mean. And it's not like Kiko, You want to talk about criminal justice reform. Exactly. <laughs> she could use a few lessons in that. Yes. And so... Again, that's the lens I'm looking at it through. I'm tired of hearing, we understand, you don't have to push it down black people, brown people, like non-white people's throats, how bad Donald Trump is. We know he's an asshole, we get it. We know he's an asshole. He's not gonna do anything for us, we get it. What is that guy gonna do for us? That's what we wanna know. And black voters and non-white voters deserve to get those issues just like, the, the same way they court white voters right now, they should be doing that to black voters and Latin voters, but they're not doing that. Because well, they, they assume are, that they have those votes already. What they are doing is they're, they're finding celebrities that are popular among <laughs> black and brown mm-hmm. voters, and they're letting them interview the president, mm-hmm. the, the the presidential candidate, or they're, you know, I mean, Ice Ice Cube is a is an intelligent guy. He's yeah. not just a dumb pop star. No, he's not. But where is Cornell West? Where is he's around? Where's John McWhorter? But what, why is why is Joe Biden not talking to him? Why are the Democrats not talking to these people? They are like they they are in secret. Well, sure, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. But they they don't put that out there to the public. Like there's everything, and this is something that's uh, it's across the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. Pop stars are becoming they're they're starting to have the social currency of 
politicians. Oh, oh, and yeah. politicians are starting to have the social currency of pop stars. You saw that with Obama. Mm-hmm. Obama was a pop star. Oh, yeah. And Donald Trump is literally a pop star oh, that yeah. made it into the White House. For sure. And now we have, you know, it's just, you saw with the Hillary Clinton campaign, all these pop stars performing at her events that you're just like, what? But Katy see, Perry? But see, it is pandering. It's pandering. It's pandering. They have to, um, instead of them doing a bottom-up approach, actually going into schools. And I'm talking about their whole, these people's whole campaigns, the Democratic Party in particular, because we know where the representation that they have comes from. Their whole campaign should be grassroots. The whole campaign should be that way. You could always... As Bernie Sanders was. Yeah, you could always reach out to white voters, like whatever means you want to do. I'm not white. I don't know how to reach a white person. I don't have that experience. But I know to reach voters like myself, you need to be in the schools, in the communities. That that shows that you care and like actually discuss policy, like serious policy, like all the policies that you know they're in the contract of Black America, all the policies that Mills talks about. Well, let's go. If, let's go through a few of those. This is from Ice Cubes, A Contract with Black America, which you can Google, and it's first thing that you'll find. There's 13 different pages on this, and each of them are very short. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not, a, it's not a heavy read. But he, um, he starts with representation, mm-hmm. getting... And it's very consistent, too. The 13.4% number is, 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 is done like that on a reason. Like, it's done purposely like that to show uniformity um to show representation to show representation but but even then um well and that's one thing that i do kind of have an issue with so like with lending reform yes he wants bank lending to be reformed so that interest rates reflect interest rates for blacks reflect those for whites because Mm -hmm. right now interest rates are higher statistically for blacks, oh, yeah. be it because there's plenty of different factors that go into that. But the one thing that, I, that I'm kind of hesitant about with all of this is the quotas. So not only do we try to make interest rates comparable, we also, he also says 13.4% of bank loans should go to blacks. Uh-huh. In an ideal world, that would be the case because that's 13.4% of the population. That's 13.4% of the loans. Yes. I don't like the, I don't like government quotas being put on, put on things like that. But you have to remember, though, this is part of the larger reparations discussion. And so it's not a way of just giving a boatload of money to people. This, his, his argument is that this would be reparations. And this is the way it's going to look. Like you, 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 you have to allocate it to different source of reason, different source of realms and arenas, uh-huh. and um, that's the way I look at it. But again, there's always room for negotiation. Even Ice Cube said himself, "There's always room for negotiation." But the point of this is to get people to listen to 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 get an insight into what our demands are. That's what this is about. And so, it may not be thirteen point four percent. But we need to we need to know that there's something being done to to get to meet us in the middle or something, you know. That's sure, something. Sure. And it may not even be the lending part. Okay, what about education? Is that more reasonable? Is um is, is that going to be more reasonable for people if you don't like that aspect well, I mean, of it? As far as education goes, I think we need to look at the underperforming schools mm-hmm. all across the country and bring those up. Yes. Period. Like, well, I mean, you know, a lot of them are black schools. A lot of them are rural white schools too. Oh yes, but exactly. We we need a across the board improvements in public education. That is a completely different debate. I don't want to get into education policy because I think there's it, a lot of things going wrong with the education it, it, it's system. Raw. They it's have raw nothing to, to do core. with they have nothing to do with race. They're yeah, just they have it's to do economic. A lot of it is well it, that and it's I mean it's it's simply mis misguided theories, mm-hmm. misguided education policy, misguided, um, you know, the way people teach. I, I saw how they're teaching multiplication of big numbers now. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is, this is not correct. This is yes. not, this is not 
helpful to a small child who's trying to learn how to multiply to draw these giant boxes and split all the numbers into different numbers and it takes them 15 minutes to multiply two numbers together. Like, mm-hmm. But see, that's, that's a big problem with Trump's idea of school choice. That platform of school choice is very dangerous with what we're talking about because if you give school choice to people, then that means that people are leaving a place and so it's easy to just exhaust that school's infrastructure. It's very easy to exhaust that infrastructure overnight if everyone's leaving to go to another school district. I think that can be very dangerous. And so because what you, that's tax dollars being pulled out exactly. of that school. And so what do you leave behind? It's like you're going to take resources away from people doing that as well. Well, I'm, I'm in one sense, I'm an advocate for school choice. Mm-hmm. I can but, see the pros to it. But there need to be compensations. For oh, yeah. Like if, you know, if, if students are leaving one school to go to another mm-hmm. if, and you're gonna, going to allow that, there needs to be some compensation for the school that's being that they're leaving, so that all the tax money doesn't get pulled out of that. You so know, they can retain. Yeah, so they can stay. So they can retain their standards of education. Maybe, for example, you know, if you're having students leave a certain school because it, they they want them to go to a different school because grade point averages are higher at that school. Mm-hmm. The school that they're leaving, well. Get better, move better teachers in there. You'll have smaller class sizes. Get, you know, start targeting that school for improvement. Yeah, but see, all that goes into what's the incentive for the good teachers to go to those schools? Well, you know, that's the thing. If you're going to have school choice, maybe if you're a public school teacher, you don't get to have choice where you work. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. We're getting into education policy, and I have <laughs> very little, very little uh, expertise in that field. Um, another thing he, Ice Cube, brings up in his contract is prison reform. Oh gosh, yes, um, abolishing private prisons, absolutely, um, abolishing prison labor without the consent of the prisoner, because mm-hmm. that's essentially slave labor. Yes, um, all and- prisoners for marijuana possession freed. I would go further, Ice Cube. Legalize marijuana. Yeah, legalize. Legalize. That's that's a big critique of this. Marijuana has to be legalized. Uh, this is a human rights issue, and I say human rights, and that's not superlative at all. It's a human rights issue because people in my family have been affected directly because of drug charges. Mm-hmm. I would go further. I think all drugs should be legal. That's me personally. Same. All drugs should be legal. Um, if you're gonna, if we you're already going have to, pharmaceutical drugs. Exactly. If you're going to prescribe things like benzos, which are extremely mm-hmm. addictive and extremely psychologically um, active, yeah, active and debilitating mm-hmm. if you come off of them. Well, I mean, why is heroin not legal? Exactly. Like, it, it obviously, obviously, you don't want people using heroin, but. They're using it anyway. Yeah. And right now, they're funding drug cartels in Central America that are essentially terrorist organizations. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So legalize it. But at the same time, it's tied to the illegality. It's tied to the illegality. What does it look like? Once these drugs are all legal, yeah, because and I think and there, it's it's that is a valid concern to have. Mm-hmm. What does our society look like once we legalize drugs? No, but 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 what I'm saying is that people are going to do drugs regardless. For there to be a drug market, there has to be a consumer. Sure. And so people are just like, do they think that people aren't going to have incentive to do drugs, whether they're legal or illegal? Marijuana is legal in some states right now. I think eleven states. But I keep going back to saying it's a moral issue because, like I said, people in my family have been directly affected by it. People that I know in my neighborhood have been completely mistreated because good people, great people, but you're going to put them in jail for fucking weed? You know what I'm saying? And so... There's a stigma. I don't understand the stigma on, on marijuana. That if you're using it or selling it, you're a bad person. Well, and deserve, well we know we know where the stigma comes in. I mean, it was it was shown in law. I mean, Nixon said that he he made it a point to target blacks and hippies. I mean, it it goes back to that. And so Reagan continued. He picked up the the same baton. 
He ran with it. He made it into a religious issue. His war on drugs in the 80s, that was compounded with the AIDS epidemic, completely destroyed black inner cities, gay neighborhoods. And then now you have the crime bill in 94. It's the, it's the same continuum. Yeah. And so it's, it's a moral issue for Joe Biden in particular because he's, he authored the legislation. That has to be legalized. Marijuana has to be legalized. There's no, we can't take anything below that. Yeah. And because, I would, my, my idea for reparations, I think I've said this on this show before, is one, one thing we could do, legalize marijuana, mm-hmm. let all nonviolent drug offenders out of prison. Oh, yeah. And only the black people who have been incarcerated for selling marijuana give them the opportunity for a small business loan to open a dispensary. Oh, guys, so, so see, you hit on something else right there. The, people don't realize that with the 11 legal states with marijuana now, mm. so that means like Mr. White Man gets to open a dispensary. Correct. And then my friends and my family members are in jail Correct. for the same things. So they already have an advantage in the space. Yeah. So when I get out, are my voting rights going to be... Um, put back on me? Like, uh, am I going to have voting rights again? It, there's just so much that goes into it. You're basically dehum- you're dehumanizing the person is what you're doing. You're setting them back. Mm-hmm. You're setting them back. And to see, I mean, I'm happy to see dispensaries popping up in all over the West Coast and Colorado and wherever mm-hmm. else. But it's very strange to see them being opened by white yuppies when black people have I mean, I grew up in Springfield, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I bought my marijuana from black people. Yeah. And I don't know how many of them got criminally charged for it. Right. But they like they should be the ones legally selling it now. Mm-hmm. Like Oh yeah. If the if but but see that's a, it's also I said the moral issue, it's also in a criminal justice lens as well. Just think about how many instances a black person, when they're pulled over by the cops, they're worried about if, a per, if they do have drugs on them, what are going to be the consequences? Because I think a Black Lives Matter um, document that came out in 2015 had something like blacks are 3.7 times more likely to go to jail for that marijuana offense than the white person. And so... It de-escalates those potential situations. Again, we don't want to interact with cops unless we need help. And so I'm not trying to wave at the cops. I mean, if cops, I'll wave back at somebody. I'm, not, I'm a nice person, but I'm not trying to look to like hang out with the cops, talk to the cops, socialize with them like some people I know who I won't mention. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm for real. Because that's what I mean. Whites have a different level when it comes to, to talking to cops even not. We don't even think about this stuff. I've seen whites go up to the cops and have conversations with them. Just mm-hmm. like don't even know the person. But, but not me. I no. just don't want I don't want any potential problem to be there. And so when you legalize these drugs, you're automatically de-escalating a situation that could be happening because they're not looking for drugs on you. And so people need to look at it from that standpoint. It's a bottom-up approach. It's not just, oh, weed is bad and this can lead to other types of criminality. You need to look at the other side of that as well. Yeah, yeah. And economically, it would be very beneficial. I don't know the studies exactly, but I know for a fact if marijuana was legal, that would really have positive effects on the economy, but that would probably cause issues with some of the, the other drug, the legal drug um, organizations that, that we're, we have to take. You know? Exactly. I, I do think it's mostly a lobbying issue it's a lobbying. because marijuana has been shown to be effective for PTSD, for depression, for anxiety, for all these different things. Now, obviously, it's different mm-hmm. with every single person. Like, marijuana makes me more anxious. So yes. I don't... I don't Use it if okay. I'm gonna if if I'm an if I'm in an, in an anxious state. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, it's it, but it would cut into the pharmaceutical company's profits. And yes, that, that is something they just won't allow. I have a positive outreach though for marijuana. I have a positive outlook about it. I think 
the next election cycle, and this is me jumping ahead a little bit, I really believe next election cycle is going to be a bigger campaign issue because it, it is tied to economy and criminal justice. Yes. And so I think, and most of the country is in favor of marijuana right now. I think the number is, I think it's 58% right now. And I see that number only going up from there. And I think depending on what happens with the election, I think the Democrats may have to readjust their strategy and may have to look into these issues like Medicare for All, which is a health issue. Marijuana is also a health issue as well. You talk about the scientific reasons for marijuana and cannabis. Uh, I think once you link those together, you say to yourself, it's popular, there's demand for it, people are already doing it anyway, legally or illegally. And I think you're gonna win over a lot of younger voters. And, and, oh, for sure. and a lot of younger voters of, of color, for sure. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about voting, <laughs> let's uh, let's finish up with the um, this next this upcoming election. You uh, you mentioned that you have a unpopular opinion about what's going to happen in this next election. Yes. Oh, I, I've gotten so much backlash over the past month. I think I posted my own electoral map about a month ago on Facebook, and I had it like Trump 313 and whatever the difference is for Biden. I think it's gonna be a Trump landslide. That's what I had on there. Some people laughed at me. A lot of people shared it out of genuine concern. They're like, wow, like maybe he knows something that we don't know. But um, it's not hard to tell what's gonna happen because there's a lot of nuance that polls don't factor in. Um, the sentiment being one of them, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for Joe Biden. Yeah. There just isn't, no one can argue that. Whether Trump has a cult of personality, he's like a terrible person, dictator, whatever you wanna call him. He is, he's a pop star, he's popular. Obama was popular, Bill Clinton was popular. And there's a reason why they still have resonance today, even though some people can't stand those figures. They have popularity. Biden doesn't have that popularity. A lot of people see him as Obama's vice president. That's yeah. all he was, you know. But black people have a different interpretation of Joe Biden and, and Latin men in particular. And that's why the media is not telling you why those groups are swinging to Trump. As much as Trump is terrible, they don't see it as, uh, they, they see it as more like, this is a guy who signed the crime bill. That's what they see it as. They see it as my neighborhoods have looked the same regardless of Clinton been in office, Bush been in office, Trump been in office. It doesn't matter who's in office. I still live in the ghetto and it looks the same way. That, that's the way they see it. And so you get a lot of people that don't vote for that reason. And then you also get people who are gonna give it a second look because it is a duocracy, it's a two-party system. And so people are gonna say, well shit, let me look at the other side because I don't believe this bullshit right here and so I'm gonna to go to the other side and look at what's there. And people are finding something. Again, what we see on television may not necessarily reflect what's happening on the ground. And I think that's one of the things, like the criminality thing is not being talked about. And is I know for a fact that black men are voting for Trump for that reason, based on the crime bill issue. Yeah, because he did pass the some criminal justice reform. Exactly. I know that for a fact, regard, that, because some people only this, vote on one issue. They have, don't vote on a lot of issues. They yeah. vote on one issue. Yeah. And you have this, I mean, something that hasn't been covered really in the mainstream media at all is this Blexit movement. Which yes. is blacks getting out of the Democratic Blacks Party. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Um, well, you know, have you heard of Candace Owens? Oh, God, are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> she, like, I, I find her insufferable sometimes. Oh, but she is? She, every once in a while, she says something where I'm like, like she, she talked about um, Cardi B mm -hmm. uh, interviewing Joe Biden. She was like, this is insulting. That it is insulting that you would have this person on just because they're popular within oh, the yeah. black community. This person that has nothing to do with politics, that has no political um, intelligence whatsoever, mm -hmm. doesn't know any of the issues, interviewing the next, potentially next president of the United States just because you're going to pander to the black audience. Mm -hmm. You could have had anyone. You yeah. could have had anyone from the black community. Yeah. Or that's popular within the black community. Well, see, and you picked her. Something you said there, I, 
Cardi is a lot more politically inclined than she gets credit for. She's she's actually pretty politically inclined. She she was a big Sanders supporter. She was one of the first Sanders supporters that was a celebrity. Did she interview him too? Yo, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. She, she, she would go into campaigns with them and stuff, and she would also, like, they've had roundtable discussions, they've had conversations. Cardi's situation, that reflects what I'm saying about, it shows you how much trouble Joe Biden is with the black community. The fact that you have San, former Sanders people, most of the people who are supporting Biden now were Sanders supporters. Correct. And so he has to win over Sanders supporters. It's not only a Blexit going on right now, but there's a, there's a, dem, a dem exit. Me <laughs> being one of them. Across the board. We're never going back to the Democratic Party until yeah. we see a semblance of what we want in it. Yeah. If you look at the Green Party platform, everything that Bernie stood for is in the Green Party platform. And so why would we support someone like Biden, who is honestly a Republican in my opinion? If you look at it from a political standpoint, Memphis is anarchy or communism, whatever you want to call it. Jackson is where I'm at politically. If you look at Nashville, that's where I think people should be. The Democrats right now are in Crossville, and Donald Trump is in Knoxville. That's where. That's the way I see the spectrum politically. Hey. That's my interpretation of it. And so I think the fact that the Dems are going so far to the right, they've basically ostracized their most supportive people. Well, exactly. The, the socialist wing exactly. is extremely upset right now. Mm-hmm. They wanted Bernie in 2016. They wanted Bernie in 2020. The DNC fucked them both times, mm-hmm. and now they're. I mean, I, I I follow the social. I follow a lot of socialists because, mm-hmm. you know, I don't agree with them necessarily, yes. but they make much more sense than this sort of center left, quote unquote, progressive, mm-hmm. um, mealy mouthed. Let's let's appeal to the gays, let's appeal to the mm-hmm. blacks, let's appeal to the Latinx people, Yeah, but let's not actually say anything mm-hmm. policy, like any, give any concrete policy or any substantial change that we're going to make oh, yeah. to help these communities. Let's just say that, we're, that we believe in them. Yes. And the socialists are sitting here going, this is not a race issue. This is not a, an LGBTQ issue. This is a class issue. It's a class issue. And it's been a class issue for, since since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now again, I'm not I'm not a Marxist, and I'm not yeah, so but, much interested in a lot of their programs. But mm-hmm. they at least say what they think. Yeah, but I don't think I, I think some of these people are Marxist socialists. But that's the problem with the party now. The Democratic Party, as much as I would love to support them, I can't. The problem is that their tent is too big. They have a spectrum from socialist, anarcho-communist, all the way to, to moderate Republicans. There's no way in the hell you can convince a voter like me. If you have Bloomberg throwing in $100 million in Florida to try to get... what? First of all, these are former Bush people, Bloomberg. How are you going to convince people like us that you have our interests? It shows me that you're going more to the right. Well, it just shows me that you're... Again, it's a class issue, and you're more concerned with bringing people that are already in the political class oh, whether exactly. they're, whether they're republicans or democrats yes to your pro, to your campaign yes because they know in the inside baseball exactly they trash the non-voters so much but they don't understand that they never try to tap into the non-voter correct they don't start from the bottom they always start from people who are going to vote anyway so it's like you're talking to yourself in a way you're not talking to the people you need to be talking to and so you're not giving anyone incentive from these disenfranchised communities to vote and it's not as simple as saying oh well Kamala Harris is a black woman or Joe Biden was friends with Barack Obama. I mean, that, that, you have to be the most superficial person in the world to... to and again, I'm not going to tell you how to vote, but don't expect that programming and messaging to sell to people just because that's the way you vote. No. I mean, it's literally the political equivalent of saying, I have a black friend. Mm-hmm. It is. Like, <laughs> it's... it's and we, and we discredit the Electoral College and how that affects, like in Tennessee, for instance... There's already voter suppression because Trump is going to win the state of Tennessee anyway. And so those 11 electoral votes are going to go to Donald Trump. And so there's not, even if you had the biggest blue wave ever, Trump is still going to win the state of Tennessee. Just ideologically, Tennessee 
and just the way it sets right now is not ready for Biden to get that vote. I mean, it's just not set up that way. It's gerrymandering is what it is. And so people tell you, oh, well, Kiko, why are you going green? Well, because we, if we get a certain percentage, we can be on the debate stage with the Democrats and Republicans in the 2024 cycle. That's The third party can get visibility if we had a fair system, but we don't have the ranked choice voting. We don't have that system. We have it now where it's like you have to have a certain amount of money to be on television. You have to have a certain amount of money to read a, some kind of a arbitrary threshold of, of cash flow. And so you're really descending, you're trying to kill other opinions because there are lots of differing opinions to this outside two-party system. Yeah, yeah, and but you see them all over the internet. But do you That's have a the, personal idea about the, the way the election is going to go? Yeah, I think, well, first and foremost, whoever, both parties have messaged to their base that the other party is cheating. Oh, yeah. And that is a very, very, very dangerous place to be mm-hmm. because that sets us up for either, at, at the very least, massive civil unrest, mm-hmm. at the worst, a civil war. I hope we don't see that, but if half the country won't accept the results of the election, whoever wins, I think we're going to at least be in a in a very socially and civilly unstable society mm-hmm. after November fifth. So, and so I don't know how long that's going. I don't. I don't know how long that's going to last. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how how widespread it's going to be. You know, I see. My little town here. Don't see a whole lot of civil unrest happening here, mm-hmm. but just because people are so politically disengaged. Yes. Um, but Nashville, I don't know. I know a lot of politically engaged. I mean, ten thousand people marched uh, on Nashville with the Black Lives Absolutely. Matter protests. Mm-hmm. They've been at the courthouse protesting for months. So you have politically engaged people here. Mm-hmm. How much will they be enraged if, and my, my, my instinct says, yes, Donald Trump is going to win. I mm-hmm. don't think it's going to be a landslide. If it is a landslide, I think we are going, I think we're going to avoid a whole lot of civil unrest oh, in, in most of the country. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, people are going to riot and burn shit down in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> they do that anyway. But I don't think you're going to see that in say, Nashville or Atlanta mm-hmm. or anywhere, like, you know, just middle-of-the-road, middle-American well, I mean, cities. That did, that, but if, but that, if that he, did happen, though, if it's a June. close election, if it's a close election, I, I, I don't know. Well, if you look at the voters, and I do follow the polls very closely, if, if people actually read inside the polls and not worry about the margin of error and who's leading and stuff like that, you get a lot of useful information. 81% of Democratic voters say that they would accept the results. 78% of Republican voters say that they would accept the results. So what that tells me is that most people are on board and yeah. they're going to accept. I mean, we can't seriously be debating unless it's some kind of an election where it was Bush in 2000. People want to forget about history. The, the country went to hell in a handbasket with that situation in 2000. With, I think he won Florida by 507 votes or something. And so I don't think it's going to be a situation like that at all because it's very clear that um, basically for Trump to retain the election, he has to... He has to keep Pennsylvania, which I think he will, even though the polls say something else. I think Pennsylvania is a lot different than what the polls are suggesting. Florida, he's going to win and stuff like that. But I think overall, with the states that are in play, North Carolina, Florida, and Pennsylvania, if he can hold on to those, like he's going to, you just have to look at the math and the map. It's already changing some. And the debates, we don't know what's going to happen with those. And so <laughs> all hell's probably going to break loose with Is with Joe the Rogan going to moderate a debate? Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I would much prefer that. I would much prefer to see those two sit down and be forced to have a three-hour conversation mm-hmm, about issues about issues than to have them up on a stage shouting over one another and just making quips and then oh well we're out of time oh yeah they're going to try to kill the clock as much as possible oh yeah 
I mean, we've seen them all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hope I hope we come through this peacefully. Whoever wins, I really honestly don't care who wins at this point. <laughs> likewise, I, likewise. I, I just want. I would like. I'm on the side of. I accept the election results. Oh yeah. And I think that's the biggest. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's the most important political divide right now in America is those who say they won't. Mm-hmm. And those who say they will, and I hadn't heard that figure um, that seventy eight percent of Republicans and eighty one percent of Democrats oh, yeah. said they would. So that's that's reassuring. Mm-hmm. It's in the polls, but they don't tell you that on TV. They just show you um, Biden's leading by two points in this, and give you the margin of error on the screen. They don't tell you anything that's actually in the polls that gives you a good idea of where people's heads are, even though it's a small sample size. Yeah, yeah. Well. Do you have anything else you want to say? Um, I just want to say, John, I really appreciate you allowing um, alternative views on your podcast. Um, we need more of that. And not just um, the conforming type of uh, media that we get when we do turn it to television. I think podcasts are just a great outlet uh, to hear these different opinions. And so um, I appreciate you having me on your show. Oh, yeah. Thank you for coming. You actually are the first person to request to be on this show. Oh, yeah? Which was very flattering to me. I was like, oh. Well, when you sent that, um, when you sent that to me, I was like, man, like, let let, let me, um, you know, share my voice with the people. Yeah. And see what's up. Yeah. And so I appreciate it again. I mean, I appreciate appreciate you and any other American citizen who has the balls to put their their opinion out there in this day and age because Mm -hmm. it's, it can be, at least we get the impression that it's very dangerous to put your opinion out there. Mm-hmm. So, man, I appreciate you coming on. Hey, thank you. Jerry, we are signing off. Near Dark Radio. Near Dark Radio.